G'day and welcome to Overdrive, where we take a sober look at motoring and transport. I'm David Brown, and in this program we have a road test of a quiet achiever, the Mazda CX-5 medium-size SUV. Dean Oliver gives us his thought for the week about the modern trend for rather flat grey colours on cars. He calls it sludge grey. And in our interview, the Road Authority in Sydney has built one of the most complex spaghetti junction interchanges in Australia. Our traffic engineering expert, Alan Finlay, runs his expert eye over its purpose, design and the signposting of the project. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or the socials, podcast, Facebook, Instagram or YouTube. Look for Cars Transport Culture. This program was originally broadcast on the 25th of November 2023. This week we again test a medium-sized SUV, and why not? They are the largest single category in the Australian market. Our vehicle this time is a Mazda CX-5 Acura. A few weeks ago we mentioned when testing the Nissan X-Trail that in the under $60,000 medium-sized SUVs, the top seven models are from traditional manufacturers. But we should not forget that it is in the over $60,000 mark that a huge change has happened with the inclusion of the Tesla Model Y. So far this year, Tesla have sold over 24,000 Model Ys, and that is only just behind the total number of Toyota RAV4s the leader in the cheaper subset of the category. In this lower-priced group, the Mazda CX-5 is third behind the RAV4 and the Mitsubishi Outlander. Mazda have kept their sales going well for a company that is really, I think, in many ways a quiet achiever, despite its zoom-zoom advertising. Now, the exterior of the vehicle has a distinctive, quite large front grille, in common with Mazda style, which is strong but not excessive, as we've seen with some other vehicle manufacturers, but from the bonnet back, it's fairly standard in its looks. Mazda hasn't given up on the internal combustion engine, and you have a choice of four power plants for this vehicle. All are four cylinders, with two being petrol, one being turbo petrol, and one being turbo diesel. Incredibly, the CX-5 comes with six comfort and feature specification variant levels, but not all engines are an option with all variations. The smallest petrol engine at 2 litres is only available in the base model. The next level gets the bigger 2.5 litre petrol engine, and the next two after that also get this engine, but with all-wheel drive. And finally, the turbo engines are left to the two top-spec models which of course also have all-wheel drive. Late last year, Mazda gave a mild upgrade to their CX-5, including the following. All greys now have a standard new generation 10.25-inch infotainment screen. The navigation system, which is available on all bar the base model, has the 7th generation version. The CX-5 will be the first Mazda to incorporate a remote window function from the key fob, and the petrol engine vehicles get an improved first service interval, which is increased to 12 months or 15,000 kilometres, whichever comes first. 
Overall, the interior has a quiet, thoughtful, perhaps even conservative air about it. A good environment for the driver and passengers without trying to make a very modern techno-fashion statement. I think quite sensibly they don't offer a seven-seat configuration that requires a third row of seats, which, as I've said in the past, is not much point in a medium-sized SUV where there is limited room or ease of access for the people who would be relegated to the very back. Final drive-away pricing varies depending on the Australian state or territory you're in, so the following are for New South Wales, which is typically near the middle. You can get savings of up to $500 or additional costs, maybe even $1,000 or so, on the total price of the vehicle in other states or territories. At the time of reporting, Mazda have some special pricing offers, starting with the base model Max. Why does the base model have a name that speaks of the upper limit of performance? No matter. The Max, spelt with a double X, is priced at nearly $39,000 drive away, with the vehicle having some reasonable features, including head-up display, which I really like and which works well. There's also other things like a reversing camera and parking rear sensors, lane keep assist and blind spot monitoring. For an extra $5,500 or so, you get the Max Sport, apparently more than the Max. And that has useful extras like wireless Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, sat-nav, dual-zone climate control, traffic sign recognition and paddle shift gear controls, among others. For a further $4,500, you get the Touring variant. A bit more comfort and style with synthetic suede interiors, front parking sensors and a wireless smartphone charging pad. And of course that includes all-wheel drive. The next step up is only a relatively small one to the Touring Active model. An additional 300 bucks or so, which keeps all the previous things but adds a few interior design touches such as green and silver accents in the interior and special 17-inch alloy wheels on the outside. The fifth level is the GTSP, which for another $5,600 gives you leather seats and red stitching, a sunroof, 10 Boss speaker system and a power tailgate. And finally, the model we tested, which was the Akira, adds another $2,300 for better leather seats, 360-degree view monitor, heated seats in the second row on the outside, not the middle one, a heated steering wheel, and the front seats are ventilated, which I really like. In total, the gap from the bottom to the top is over $18,000, or nearly 50% of the base price, but that's typical. And there are a lot of extra things. The car drives with comfort and not excessive road noise. The six-speed gearbox is a little limited. I found the diesel engine's fuel consumption was not quite as low as I would have liked up around the eight or so when it is rated at six and a half litres per hundred kilometres. The six-speed gearbox is a little limited. At times the car held the gear under moderate throttle pressure in a manner that seemed a little uncomfortable, not excessive and not often, but it left you wondering if an 8-speed automatic gearbox might be nice. But then again, it is still better, to my mind, than a CVT gearbox. 
Unlike many vehicles from other brands, the Mazda does not have a touch screen function with the infotainment screen in the centre of the dash, but rather works off a dial down near the gear lever, which you can rotate or move in any of the four directions, a bit like a mouse. Some people don't like it, I reckon it's a great idea. For each twist of the dial, you can move the cursor on the screen in distinct steps, but it will only stop on the specific available options, thus avoiding the finger stabbing at various areas that can occur with a touch screen. I found it particularly came into its own when controlling the map view in the navigation system, where a simple twist of the dial can change the scale of the map, again in specific amounts each time. Unlike a typical touchscreen where you can try to put two fingers on the screen and open or close them to change the scale, or look for and struggle to find those tiny little areas to press a plus or minus sign. And on the map, you can just toggle the controller to move the cursor to wherever you want. And with a single press of the button, you get a choice of options, such as set up guidance to the point you have moved your cursor to. I'm much happier with this type of system, although I do have to be a little cautious about not being overconfident and spending too much time tracking through various options that I should only do when the car is stationary. There are two points in the machine-human interface that I found a little quirky, if not frustrating. The first was that Mazda uses some non-traditional name for things. For example, I struggled to find the adjustment for the head-up display control to get it in my line of sight. I even looked in the manual. It wasn't called head-up display. It was called the active driving display. I also found it frustratingly difficult to pair my mobile phone. I have pictures of my phone saying I am connected and the vehicle saying no you're not. I sought the efforts of a person from a younger generation and they took less time but still not nearly as easy as is the case with many other cars where it can be done in about 10 seconds. I will do more on the human machine interface as designed by a range of manufacturers at a later date. So in conclusion, the CX-5 medium-size SUV is Mazda's best-selling vehicle so far this year, accounting for 23% of their sales, although the numbers for this model are a little lower than last year. It is a well-developed and well-made vehicle that speaks of a certain understated quality and confidence. Mazda, at this stage, are still focused on the internal combustion engine. They say they are moving to some electrification, but one gets the feeling that they're not going to easily give up on their current style of power plants. You're listening to Overdrive. When we had the Nissan X-Trail out recently, it was that becoming more common colour of a grey, almost a off-colour base model grey. Is that good or bad? Well, who better to talk to about that than our expert in all things to do with art, colour and design, Dean Oliver. G'day, Dean. Uh, hello, David. David, your introduction is very flattering. <laughs> Maybe a touch exaggerated. <laughs> the Nissan. I want to talk about both the Nissan and the Polestar. The Nissan... Well, you saw a number plate the other day that reflected a person's pride in this 
a grey coloured paintwork that's becoming quite common. Yes, David. I, I always enjoy looking at the personalised number plates, and uh, and there was one that re- really demanded the second look at both the number plate and the car. The car was uh, was a Stinger, you know, a good looking, uh, you know, the Stinger GT is a good looking car, hmm. and uh, there it was in all its glory in that flat drab grey, a hmm. colour which I like to call sludge grey, <laughs> and the. But the personalised number plates, and uh, and hello if the uh, owner of those plates is uh, is listening. But the, the personalised number plate was P R I M E R. Primer. Do you remember your your line of trying to tell a car of the eighties? You can't tell it beyond fifty metres, then it hasn't got much of a design to it. Yes. I wonder if there's not an equivalent for paint as well. Yeah, good observation, David. And when there are distinctive colours, as as indeed, and we should complement Peugeot, Citroen. We saw that Mazda the other day, which even it was grey, but at least it was an interesting golden kind of grey. But but the other cars, like I mentioned, Peugeot and Citroen, greeny colours and warm metallic colours, which are really interesting, lovely colours and which stand out at a distance. And I can see that lovely Peugeot uh, greenish colour mm. uh, from a distance. And there's a couple of BMWs which have now sort of transgressed into good, interesting colours and they're Instantly recognisable from from some distance, yeah. The green was a rich, deep green without being like a cheap candy apple green. It had a depth of character to it. Oh, yes. Like, remember, you just said candy apple green and that. Remember, well, remember those cars. We've often talked about the the horrendous bright-coloured cars of the 1970s, you know, uh, our local cars of Holdens and Falcons and the like. But here was this rich, warm olivine, I think it was called, and and it truly had a a really lovely, deep metallic green, which was interesting to look at. It caught the light beautifully, and uh, it was a really good-looking colour. Back to the sludge grey colours, they are getting a little better, and there is a little depth of of warmth and a depth, that slight metallic sheen to them, which makes them much more interesting. The Polestar, X-Trail comparison is a good one, I think, the Polestar had that had a, a pearlish kind of sheen to it, which was a cool, sort of cool, slightly bluish. It had a faint tint of almost Hyundai blue to it, but it didn't dominate. You go back to the candy apple green, that was a different market. That was a, a bright, in-your-face, youthful, yes. standout in the same way as wearing bright purple flared pants. Yes, absolutely. The Polestar, yeah, it had that element of blue in it, didn't it? But not that you would immediately see it. It sort of seeped into you as you looked at it closely. It's a colour which demanded close observation. You think, well, that's interesting. Why is it interesting uh, to look at? And uh, quite apart from uh, what I think is is the lovely styling of the Polestar, it made you want to look more closely at it to find out why the colour was interesting. You're listening to Overdrive. In Sydney, they have built what is being described as one of the most complex road interchanges in Australia. It is uh, along the lines of the things you see in America with clover leaves of access, although it's in a fairly contained uh, area. It's not one of the huge great things, but there are flyovers and many other things. Our expert in traffic engineering design is our good friend 
Alan Finlay, who joins us on the line. Alan, this is just west of the CBD. Is it as bad as people are describing? Well, it's certainly complicated, David. It's a three-level, as they call it, spaghetti interchange, but it's underground. So the whole interchange is uh, underground, and it connects basically the Anzac Bridge with the uh, fairly recently completed M8, which is the um, West Connects Road that goes from the airport and eventually connects with the M4 at uh, Haberfield or uh, Ashfield. So there are two roads leading off the M8 and the M4, which head towards Anzac Bridge. And this new interchange will connect those, um, those roads to the Anzac Bridge and to Victoria Road. At this particular location, only a, a kilometre or so west of the CBD, you have Victoria Road, northwest, a major at-grade old-style road. You have the other road coming in from the west, which links over from the M4, and then you have the southern roads, which again at roads, Johnson Street leading into it, very much old-style roads, which often then sort of come together to then head into the CBD. Not that every bit of traffic does that, and that's the point. They're also linking to things, but from that intersection, if you head sort of north, northwest, you go through Balmain. So there's a tunnel under that now. Yes. Which is nice. You know, that's a good bypass route. But the key thing it hasn't done yet is connect or finish the tunnel from that location in the west of just west of the CBD to the northeast to tunnel to get out another crossing of the harbour. Yes, that's right. And that, that's also what makes this um, interchange very complicated because in the future, there will be ramps that go to the new Western Harbour Tunnel, which will travel under the Balmain Peninsula and cross the harbour under the harbour and emerge on the uh, existing Warringah Freeway. Mm. So right at the moment, you can see a lot of work going on at Camaray and at North Sydney on the Warringah Freeway. That work is in preparation for the access roads or the access tunnels that will uh, lead to the new Cross Harbour Tunnel. And then that Cross Harbour Tunnel will link into this uh, spaghetti interchange underneath Roselle. As you mentioned, the good thing about the interchange that's about to be opened will be a bypass of Roselle. So Victoria Road, if you're coming from the northwestern suburbs, after you cross Iron Cove Bridge, you will be able to enter a tunnel and that tunnel will take you directly to Anzac Bridge without having to go through Balmain and, uh, and Roselle. So that will be a good thing. And that will actually be toll-free, oh. whereas all of the other roads in that spaghetti interchange will be tolled. See, that's a critical issue because it's not a long tunnel. My immediate thought is, oh, if they're going to whack a toll on that, well, how many people will do the short distance but rather, you know, multiple traffic light alternative of, of the old road? What a fantastic idea not to toll it. Yes, I, I think so. And it gives an opportunity to convert that section of Victoria Road through Roselle back into, it, it will never be a two-lane uh, village road, but it could be treated so that it's less about traffic and more about the local community and the local placemaking. Mind you, the buses will still traverse that section because there are some important bus stops there 
for commuters from Roselle and to a lesser extent Balmain that will still want to catch buses uh, into the city. But with less conflict. Uh, Absolutely. And the pedestrians that currently wait a long time to cross Victoria Road because it's six lanes or seven lanes wide, there'll be opportunities to narrow down the number of lanes on Victoria Road and therefore make the pedestrian crossing time shorter and hopefully the signal cycle times can come down and uh, lead to less overall delay for the local users. It could develop that area, which is very close to the CBD, and provide perhaps more uh, appropriate development there rather than being dominated by a major road. Yes, that's right. Uh, At grade, major, old-style road. Yes. So I know that the Inner West Council has plans and they've been in discussion with uh, Transport for New South Wales about what the future Victoria Road will look like as soon as the Iron Cove link is opened. And uh, I think we're yet to see what the final detail will look like. But as you know, if you're a transport planner, um, you have to take advantage of these things immediately that they happen. Because if you don't do something very quickly, the traffic on the surface road will build again to the point where it's very hard then to take away capacity. And a great example of that, there have been a couple of examples. One was on the Sydney Harbour Bridge when the um, the existing uh, harbour tunnel was opened. Immediately, one lane of the bridge was dedicated as a bus lane Yeah, uh, because you could afford, because of the extra capacity under the harbour, to, uh, to remove that traffic lane. And the other example is Epping Road through Lane Cove when the Lane Cove Tunnel was built, there was an opportunity to reduce the number of lanes on Epping Road and provide um, 24-hour bus lanes. And the other example is the government's grand plans for Parramatta Road, which they haven't. Which hasn't happened. Parramatta Road, to my observation, is still carrying very large volumes of traffic despite the opening of the the West Connects and even the M4, M8 link, which was the final sort of... Uh, missing link between um, Ashfield and the airport, uh, there's still an awful lot of traffic using Parramatta Road in the peak periods and right throughout the day. Those uh, links, great tunnels, great bypasses, but a high cost. Yes, they are They are toll. very expensive. They're, um, they're tollways, and as I said, the only one that's not going to be tolled as far as we know and for the foreseeable future is the Iron Cove link, which is part of that uh, spaghetti junction. You're listening to Overdrive. Uh, Almost with an element of pride, a government might put up a huge, great spaghetti-symboled sign as if to say, gee, we've done a lot of work, but that doesn't necessarily remove confusion. No, it will be very interesting to see how the destinations are signposted. I guess there's always a challenge with directional signposting as to what you put on the sign which is most meaningful to the average driver. We use a combination of suburbs and we also use road names. Now, the trouble for anyone who's not familiar with road names is that it probably won't mean anything to them. So if you're an out-of-towner and there's a sign that says Victoria Road, it might not mean all that much to you. So it will be very interesting to see how they signpost um, the various ramps and the uh, decision points in the interchange. I did see a quote from um, someone from Transport for New South Wales, Howard Collins, the the General uh, Director of Operations, and he indicated that at any one point there will only be two 
options. So you will either go left onto a ramp, which will take you to one particular location, or you stay on the, the what we would call the main line, and that will take you to another. So it's not like you're being presented with three options. Basically, at any one point, there'll be just two options to choose from. Mm. But as I guess the old saying goes, the proof will be in the uh, the proof of the pudding will be in the eating when we finally get to drive on it and and see what the signposting looks like. But if you get two options, then uh, a few hundred, 10, 20 feet down the road, metres down the road, you get another two options and then you get... I don't think the ramps will be that close together. I mean, good freeway design means that you don't have ramps so close together that you're forced to make multiple decisions as quickly as that. But like any of these things, there will be a lot of initial confusion and it will take people some time, I guess, to get accustomed to what their normal route would be. But I I once heard a a very good argument that the best directional signposting should be designed by someone who doesn't live in that city. (laughs) So perhaps we should have imported someone from Melbourne or Brisbane and uh, ask them to do the directional signposting for the for the spaghetti interchange. <laughs> they will, unfortunately, of course, with some of the elegant design, I think, of the Anzac Bridge, to have some rather large gantry, which will be important to give directions, but sadly remove some of the elegance that you have from that structure. Yes, I think it'll be um, interesting to see exactly how those uh, gantries are used. As I understand it, they're not so much about directional signposting, but more about managing emergency closures or unusual conditions or perhaps uh, crashes in the tunnels. I think, my understanding is that they're going to be things like variable message signs and um, variable speed limit signs rather than directional signposting. If you have a look at the animated videos on the WestConnex website or the the Transport for New South Wales website, which has links to it, you can actually do drive-through animations of uh, from various starting points to various finishing points using the new interchange. And from what I've seen, from the few that I've looked at, it is quite sensible in terms of where the decision points are and, and what the signposting says. But I have to be careful in saying that because... Being an old roads guy, I guess I know the the road network very well and I might not be surprised when I see certain destinations on the signs. But for someone who's not familiar with the road network or hasn't studied uh, the various options of the interchange, it probably is a little bit more confusing. There's also the gap between reality and graphics. Exactly. Yes, whenever you look at those animations... Surprisingly, there's very little traffic on the road. There's only one or two other vehicles on the on the road. Would I assume no noise either, and no sort of sunlight? Of course, heading west out over the Anzac Bridge, the sunlight can often get you. Yes, that's right. I'm not saying that that makes it wrong. I'm just saying that the reality of of giving a clear animation might have those variations in it. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's the, the reality is um, usually quite different. The other thing is that you could be following a very large truck, uh, which is uh, basically blocking out all vision of the of the signs, um, particularly if you're not being a terribly careful driver and you're following too closely. You won't get a very good vision of the signposting up ahead or the road markings indeed on the road. A final point, if I have a sat-nav system that is not updated, I'm in trouble. Yes, 
it depends a lot on uh, the car that you drive and what your agreement is with the uh, with the dealer or the uh, the manufacturer as to how frequently your um, sat nav can be updated and how much it costs. So it's quite common for sat nav uh, mapping systems to be only updated annually if you're only getting your car serviced annually. And, and after the first couple of years, you generally have to ask for the system to be updated, and that usually comes at a cost. Yeah, our colleague Evan says it's two hundred and fifty dollars or something. Wow! Yes, I, I, I haven't I haven't updated my system the last time I had the car service, but I'm, I'm I wouldn't be surprised if it if it were that much. Alan, always great to get the nuances and the detail and the practical realities of new interchanges which are often politically sold but need to be practically implemented. Thank you very much for your time. Not at all, David. Nice to talk to you. And that's Alan Finlay, a traffic engineer and a transport expert who adds his depth of understanding to these issues. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Alan Finlay, Dean Oliver, Mazda Australia and Mark Wesley for their help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or links to the socials and podcasts. Look for Cars, Transport, Culture. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.